Welcome to Harvest. I am Pastor Micah. So glad you're worshiping with us today. If you're a guest here, as Chris said earlier, man, we want to serve you well and make sure that you feel welcome today. So if we can do anything to help you or serve you, please let us know. We'd love to do that. Um, as also he shared earlier, I was in Honduras this past week uh, doing some assessing of a new possible church plant down there. So it was an exciting week for all of that, and I'm glad to be back. Um, but because of all of what was going on this week down there, I did not uh, have time to prepare a message. Um, so we're just going to go home now. And um, is that what we do at Harvest? No, no, no. I've actually got a good friend of mine from college that's going to come and bring the word to us. Uh, this is Chris Pearson. Go ahead and come on up, Chris. And uh, so we uh, went to college together, and he is now pastoring. He's an associate pastor up at a, uh, at, uh, what's the name of the church now? FB, okay, so First Baptist Church of Ferguson, and um, so he is uh, going to bring us God's word today. Make him feel welcome, please. So, good morning. Um, so, greetings from uh, North County, St. Louis here. A little bit further down here. Yeah, you can try to. better? Yeah? Okay. So as I was saying, greetings from North County, uh, St. Louis, uh, First Baptist Church of Ferguson uh, out there. Um, whenever I'm uh, preaching somewhere new, especially outside of North County, I uh, always tell people, yes, it's that Ferguson from, um, from, uh, several, from several years ago. And um, I let people know that uh, all the things that you saw in the uh, newspapers, all the things that you saw uh, on the news, the, the fire, the shouting, and all of that, um, it, it was, yes, it was stirred up by Satan. There was anger and there was uh, chaos and all of that. But I always tell people that with every fire you saw, what it really was was just a flare for the gospel. What all, all, the, all the anger and violence you saw was a cry for the gospel. We had people uh, uh, in just several counties over who had never even heard of Ferguson or Florissant before. And then after that time, you had people nations away lifting us up in prayer. And so what, I mean, it says it all the time in scripture, what man or what Satan means for evil, God means for for good. And so the, the beauty of what took place uh, after that, we had a, a spotlight, but not just the spotlight of media or bloggers or anything like that, but the spotlight of the gospel on us as well uh, during that time. So again, uh, greetings from uh, that very famous or infamous part of uh, St. Louis there. Um, what we're, what we're going to do today is look at Philippians 1, uh, 9 through 11, as you have on the screens in front of you. It's uh, the first part of Paul's letter to the Philippian church. I'll read the passage, uh, we'll pray, and then we'll get started. Again, we're in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. This is Paul's prayer 
for the Philippians church, Philippian church at this time, and he says the following. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we as your gathered people here, if we've, as we've already saying, we, we've come to announce that you are glorious, that you are victorious, that the, the stone was rolled away from, from the tomb, not because Jesus was too weak to do it, but because we needed to see in that it was already done. And so, God, that's what we, that's what we come to celebrate this morning in, in song, in, in giving, in fellowship, and by the study of your word together as your people. So, God, I pray that the uh, meditation of our hearts, the word of, uh, uh, that, that I get to preach this morning, Lord, would be pleasing to you, that it would be pleasing in your sight. Uh, I pray that the fruit of that word would continue on, not just through the rest of the service or today, but it would echo throughout all of eternity. Not that the speaker would be remembered, God, but the the God who gave the word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, never want to assume anything uh, about uh, any anywhere I'm preaching. So, uh, what I want to do first is just uh, kind of introduce uh, this letter uh, to you all. I'm a teacher by uh, by trade, and so it's always a dangerous thing to go in assuming. Uh, things about people who are uh, listening to you. So this is uh, what we would normally call a prison epistle, a prison letter. Paul is at this time in prison in Rome, and he's in prison in Rome for the same reason he's in prison most of the time, and it's because he was preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was at this time where him and uh, another brother in Christ, a man named Silas, were going around Philippi and preaching the gospel, and they come upon this little girl who's possessed by a demon, and this demon is using her to fortune tell, more or less, and, and there are these businessmen who've uh, happened upon this little girl, and they're using her to make money, and she's just following around Paul and Silas throughout Philippi kind of spiritually getting in the way of what they're trying to accomplish. And so one day you can imagine the frustration on Paul's face. He casts the demon out. And of course, uh, this ends up being a bad business move for the uh, men that own this little girl. And so they get him and Silas thrown into prison. It's while they're in prison in Philippi that uh, the Lord, in the midst of their singing and praying, shakes their shackles and all the shackles of the prisoners in that jail free. And just as the jailer is about to 
kill himself because they've all, uh, what he thinks, have run away. Paul announces that they're still there, and the jailer himself believes the gospel as well. So it's, it's in Philippi that all of this happens. And so as Paul is planting this church, as he gathers with uh, these believers that meet at a woman named Lydia's house, uh, he shares the gospel with them. He lives with them for a while, and then he must go on with the work that God has for him. But even while he's gone, they continually supply for his needs over and over and over again. And this is really uh, the purpose of uh, this letter as a whole. He wants to write to them and let them know, thank you for what you have done and continue to do. And in the latter part of the second chapter, we see that uh, one of the people in particular, Philippian named Epaphroditus, he has taken much needed supplies to Paul and in the process has grown sick himself almost to the point of death. And so Paul is sending Epaphroditus and Timothy back to Philippi to let them know I'm doing well, your brother is doing well, and I rejoice in what you have done. And so with all of that background aside, we see that Paul's heart and Paul's desire for them is deep. His love for them is deep. He even says in verse 3 and 4, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. It is a joy for Paul to pray for them. And so when we jump down to this prayer, we see that Paul is praying these specific things for them. But first, we need to look at why is Paul even praying in the first place? So what is the purpose of Paul's prayer? But even bigger than that, what is the purpose of prayer in general? There are tons of sermons, probably thousands upon thousands of books, millions of sermons that have been given on the topic of prayer, but I want to just boil it down to just one small, simple thing that is asking God to do what only God can do. That's it. And it can, of course, be blown out even further than that. You could have a whole conference on the idea of prayer, but this morning we're just going to leave it at asking God to do what only, what only God can do. The school that I work at is about six miles or so away from my house, and if I really wanted to, I could get down on my knees in the morning and pray that God would, in the morning, lift me by his mighty hand and drop me off at school. But I don't need him to do that. He's given me the materials to do so. While I'm eating breakfast, I can pray that he would lift the fork to my mouth and feed me, but I don't need for God to do that. He's given me the, the fine motor skills. He's given me a vehicle. He's given me gas to get back and forth to work. So obviously all these things and even my ability to do those things come from God, but I don't need God to reach down and physically do them for me. So we pray about things that only God is capable of doing. Only God is capable of giving the Philippians what they are going to need, what Paul is about to pray for. But again, before we get there, just the first question, 
when was the last time you prayed anything so big, so bold, so audacious, that if God doesn't do it, it won't get done? When was the last time that you just laid it all on the table? God, if you don't do this, if you don't make this happen, it won't happen. Period. It will not take place. So let me challenge you the next time uh, that, that you are praying with, uh, by yourself or fellow believers. Can you pray something truly that big and trust that God is going to fulfill that for you? But as we go into Paul's prayer, really he only pr- prays for them three things. That they would abound more and more in love, knowledge, and all discernment. That's what he is asking for them. And if you read the New Testament, the, the gospel, the church, the body of believers, we, we are constantly inundated. We, we are constantly encouraged and pushed to love one another. Not just a shallow love that the culture around us calls love, but a deep and abiding love. Jesus even says in John 17 that the love that he wants us to show one another is the same kind of love that him and the Father share with one another. That perfect unity of love. In fact, that very unity of love, that love that we show one another is our greatest witnessing tool. Jesus says in John 17 that As we love one another, as Christ loved us, the world would come to understand that we are his disciples and that he was sent by his Father. And so we are to love uh, one another. Of course, we are to love God first and best. This is the ever-present need of the church. Honestly, we cannot say that there is a church out there who has mastered love that has no need or room to grow and abound in more love. It is something that we can count on to increase more and more and more. We can have every gifting, we can have every ability, the most amazing choir or praise band, the most amazing uh, uh, children's group, whatever it is, but if we lack in love, we lack in all of those areas in the end. In fact, this is the whole basis behind the book, the letter 1 Corinthians. Paul even starts off 1 Corinthians 1 by saying, you all have all these gifts given by God, that they are lacking in nothing whatsoever. And yet the rest of the book spells out how they are not loving each other well, all the way up and through 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul needs to speak into, okay, this is how you love. This is how you show love. And if you're not showing love in this way, you're getting it wrong. They had people who were prophets. They were speaking in tongues. They were doing all of these different things, but their love was shallow and nearly absent. And so they had to be rebuked by Paul. 
but even when there's not necessarily a, a rebuke. If you, if you look at Ephesians 3, and you don't have to turn there, but Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, Paul says the following for them and his prayer for them. It says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of, of, of God. He is asking that God root them in love. The spiritual gifts will come. The resources will, will come. All of those things will, will come. But what is desperately needed is love. A true gospel-filled love. Paul also prays for their knowledge and discernment, and thankfully he prays for their love first because if knowledge comes but the love is not there, we just become prideful and vain. We, we, all, know, we all know people whose heads are swollen with biblical knowledge, but their heart is shriveled and cold towards their fellow man and to God. Not, not truly loving God or your fellow man, but growing in knowledge just proves that we are not of him. Yet, when love is present first, knowledge demands to know more and more about the object of that love. We, we all know somebody, and you might be one of them, who when you latch on to a new hobby, a new idea, you want to know everything about it. You go to websites, books, news articles, whatever it may be. Why? Because you, are, you love this idea, you love this thing, you love this concept, you love this person, and you want to know as much as possible. And as you learn more, as you know more, that love increases. And as the love increases, you desire to know more. In fact, I'm convinced that part of what makes heaven heaven is the fact that for all eternity, our knowledge of God gets to grow without any sin being in the way. We will know God fully. We will know God to the fullest ability that redeemed humanity can. And when we feel like we have reached that level of full knowledge will know more. That's what makes heaven heaven, the fact that we will be able to know God fully for all eternity, for endless ages. And then finally, discernment is simply taking that knowledge and doing with it as God would have us do with that knowledge. So, again, it's the purpose of Paul's prayer is that he is praying for God to do what only God can do. And, the, and this thing is that the Philippians would grow in love and knowledge and discernment. Only God can accomplish that within them. But the bulk of this prayer is spent with Paul telling them 
why he's praying this. He, he tells them that he is praying for their abounding love, knowledge, and discernment. But why is he doing this? He says in verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So this is the focal point of the prayer. Why is Paul praying this? It's not just, uh, uh, this is what I want for you, but he's telling them why he wants it. He wants them to be people who approve what is excellent. Everybody in this room answers to somebody probably on their job. Your boss doesn't need you to approve of what he does. You just have to be obedient to him and her. That's all. You just have to toe the party line. They don't, most of the time, they don't care if you're actually happy about it at all, as long as you're doing as you're told. But this is completely different. Approval is not just mere obedience because if I do something on my job that goes against what my superiors tell me to do, I can be fired. And so it's that fear of being fired that will keep me obedient. But this is completely different. Obedience does not mean approval. Obedience means I'm going to do this because I have to do this. Approval is what we applaud and encourage in others. When I approve of something, I am saying, yes, do this thing. I encourage you to do this thing. As the midterm elections come up, we will start hearing more and more again on different commercials. My name is Christopher Pearson, and I approve this message. The politician, the voice on the other end, is saying, these are things that I believe, and I am making this commercial in order to encourage you to do the same thing. I approve of this message. I want you to approve of this message as well and do these things. And so approval is what we applaud and encourage. We, we applaud it in ourselves and in others. We encourage others to do the same thing. And, and before we get into what we're actually called to approve, I do want to jump to one verse. And it's not bookmarked in my Bible, which I normally do. But it's Romans 1, 28 through 32. And it has the same language of approval here, but in a much different light. Paul is talking about just the depth uh, of sin that mankind without God has fallen into. And he says the following, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then here's 
Here's the part we need here. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so on the opposite end, what does it look like in Romans 1 here? They not only do those things, but they applaud and encourage others who are in the same state as them. We're, of course, called to uh, uh, not applaud, not approve of what is sinful. Rather, we are called to approve what is excellent. What is, what is excellent? And we've sung about so many of these things already this morning. God is excellent. His character is excellent. His holiness, his perfection His wisdom is excellent. All things about God are excellent. And we get to praise and worship that excellent God forever. His word is excellent. His word is excellent because it shows us who he is. It invites us into seeing and praising him for his excellence. And his actions are excellent. But we do not make these things excellent by approving them. So we we go back to the idea of having a boss. If you put in for time off, your boss has to approve that time off. It's the approval from your boss that makes you, or that allows you to have that time off. Before that, it's not approved. But God does not need his excellence approved by us. In that way, he's not saying, I need you to approve of this so that it's good, so that it's okay. What he's saying is, these things in me are excellent. The things that I do are excellent. You need to improve of them because I am excellent. So when we praise God, when we approve what is excellent, when we applaud and encourage the godliness within other people and in our own hearts, what we are saying is, this is excellent because it is of God. It's important to note that as Paul by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls us to approve what is excellent. It's important to note that he doesn't just say approve, because we all approve of something. Our, our lives, our, our words, our hobbies show that we approve of, of something. The TV shows you watch, the music you listen to, the places you go, where you work, they show that you approve of something. And so I've started doing this, working on this uh, passage here. Whatever conscious choice that you make throughout the rest of your day, and go further if uh, the Lord leads you, say to yourself, I applaud and encourage this thing that I'm doing. Can you honestly and wholeheartedly say that and not be convicted. I applaud and encourage
this thing that I am doing. This is good, and I, I would love for other people to do it as well. So whatever you do for the rest of this day, have that, have that phrase revolving in your mind. I applaud and encourage this action. And it would be good if others did it as well. If you can't say that, is it excellent? Is it excellent? We get to the next part of Paul's uh, purpose for praying for them. And, and this, this prayer has not only ramifications or results in, in time, but also in eternity. It's timely and it's timeless. Paul, Paul says that so you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So it's not just approving what is excellent now, but it has echoes into the future, into eternity. He wants us to be, he wants the Philippians to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ when all of us have to give account for the deeds done in the flesh. So giving account touches our lives. Being pure and blameless stems from giving approval to that what is excellent. We, we give account for these things. And Paul is not the only apostle to bring this up. In 1 John 3, John says that everyone who hopes to see Christ purifies himself as Jesus himself is pure. But it all wraps back into what we are approving of. Will you be ashamed of what you approve of when you have to give account of it to Christ? That's the question you need to ask yourself. That's the question I need to ask myself on not just a daily basis, but moment by moment. Will I be ashamed of the things that I have approved of here? Will I be able to, pure and blameless, stand before him and say that I've done what I could? And will I say, will I hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Is what you are applauding and encouraging leading to purity and blamelessness? And I never want to just sit here and attack music or movies or TV shows or anything along those lines. There is Christian freedom, definitely. But there is also the idea of, is it leading you to purity? Is it leading you to blamelessness in Christ Jesus? Liberty aside, will you be able to stand before our Lord and say, I thought this was pure and blameless? Those things that you do, can you applaud and encourage them in others? When, when I was in college, when Micah, Courtney, and I were in college, 
Um, there was something called the, uh, the purity culture. So it's basically we, we had purity rings and, and uh, uh, there were tons of books out about uh, specifically uh, purity before marriage and then the, the, the holy grail of this time period was a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye and it was written by uh, this guy who oddly enough kind of did ministry in reverse First he wrote a book, then he became a pastor, and then he quit being a pastor and went back to seminary. It was really interesting. And he was just talking about how he, he's left all that, all that behind. And it was, I mean, it's not bad. It's not, it's not bad to seek purity. Of course, we need to seek purity. However, the issue was that this purity culture lacked foundation. No one understood why they were being pure. They just knew that we were supposed to be pure. That's it. That, that's, that's all we knew. But it starts with approving what is excellent. When you get wrapped up in what is truly excellent, who God is, his word, his actions, what he has done, his faithfulness, and all of that. And then when impurity looks you in the face, you can say, no, I have something excellent instead. But we were lacking that. We missed that part. We missed that foundation. We were told more or less to, to go for the result as opposed to really told how to get there. And it's, it's interesting, I was thinking about this the other night, the Pharisees and the purity culture really had a lot in common. The, the Pharisees started off really well-intentioned. If you know anything about Bible history, the, the, the Jews had gotten way off track. They were disobedient to God's word. They had fallen back into idolatry. They, they did not follow the law. And so you had this group of men who set themselves apart and they wanted to follow the law of God. And they were going to teach Israel how to follow that law as well, which was all well and good, well intentioned. But by the time Jesus gets there, so many different things had been built into it that it wasn't about it wasn't about God is excellent and we need to respond to it. It was stay pure. Stay ceremonially clean. They, they built in all of these things to make sure that there was no possibility of breaking the law and in building in all of those things, they broke the law. They didn't love, they didn't seek God because of his Excellence. They began to use God to show how pure they were and continued to set themselves aside from the rest of their culture. They began to focus largely on what they were against and not what was excellent. May we not be known for the same things. And the church constantly falls into this time and time again. The Pharisees, the purity culture, anything along those lines that focuses on what we do first as opposed to the love and the knowledge of God and the seeking what is excellent and then 
purity and blamelessness erupting joyously from that. And then finally, Paul says that they are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise, to, to the glory and praise of God. Ultimately, what we're doing is applauding and encouraging what Christ himself applauds and encourages. We are approving what Christ himself approves to the glory of, of God. If you look at the idea of fruit in the New Testament, it's the idea, fruit is the last thing you see on a tree, but it lets you know what kind of tree it is. You can scream and yell at an orange tree to create apples, and at the end of harvest season, you're going to have oranges. Why? Because there's something in the DNA of that tree that only knows how to create oranges. Jesus says to his disciples in, I believe, John 14, can't remember off the top of my head right now, but he says that their, their praying will produce fruit, and that fruit will prove to the world that they're Jesus' disciples. This, this righteous fruit that comes only from Christ, only from the righteousness uh, of Christ that is given to us. For what reason? To the glory and praise of God. As we go out and we approve of what is excellent, as we go out and as we approve of what is excellent, and so show ourselves pure and blameless, filled with that righteous fruit, it will be God who gets the glory from it. Not you, not me, but God who gets the glory from it. And Jesus said as much in the Sermon on the Mount, that let your light so shine so that men may see your good works, yes, but in response give glory to your Father. People will see what we approve of as excellence. People will see our purity and blamelessness. People will see the fruit of righteousness that springs from us. And then they will give glory to the one who did it. Not us, but the one who put it in there. So, just to backtrack here, Paul's prayer is simply for them to show love, knowledge, and discernment. Why? So that they can approve what is excellent. That excellence is built on what we know of God, his, his word, his character, his actions, so that we may show ourselves to be pure and blameless at his return, filled with the righteousness that he has given us to the praise of his great glory. And again, 
just that first question, just that first challenge, and I promise to do so if you as, do as well. As you go throughout the day, every conscious thought, every conversation, everything you listen to, you read, you watch, every place you go, hear my annoying voice in the back of your mind. Do I approve and applaud? Do I encourage and applaud what I'm doing right now? Do I want this to take place in other believers? Would I applaud them and encourage them to do this? Would I see Christ applauding and encouraging this in me? Is this making me pure and blameless for that great day? And if you can't walk away, if you can't walk away from that and say, you know what, yes, I see how this can make me pure and blameless. Yes, I, I see why I would encourage someone to do what I just did or what I'm currently doing. If you can't do that, reconcile that quickly. Reconcile that quickly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your, as, we, as we sang, your glory fills this earth. You are glorious, you are victorious, you are matchless in all that you do and all that you say and all that you accomplish. You are, you are matchless, you are our Lord over life. You have crushed death. You have beaten it. And so, Lord, we... We applaud you. We see you and lift you up as most excellent. We see you, we lift you up, and we would encourage others to do the same. God, may we be in response to that pure and blameless before you. The world will see it as foolishness, as ridiculousness, but may, we, but may we be pure and blameless before you, Heavenly Father, waiting for that day or that fruit of righteousness that you grow within us will be shown. God, make us ready for that day. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.